0: Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from Wii Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out Wii Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals. With incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice, all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code FRIENDS at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. I'm your host Al Horner, and I'm a man of the belief that any movie in which Kate Blanchett screams at her neighbours while aggressively playing the accordion, well, that's a film worth talking about. Which is why I'm so excited that this week we're joined by writer-director Todd Field, whose incredible new film Tar has really burrowed its way into my subconscious. Recently nominated for just about every award going, it's an up-close portrait of a prodigious but problematic classical pianist named Lydia Tarr, played by Blanchett. Tar's achievements as the first female conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic are blighted by a history of sexual misconduct allegations now threatening to unravel her life, her marriage and her mental health. Lydia's abuses of power in this tense, sensory drama have seen the film become a lightning rod for conversations around so-called cancel culture. But as you'll discover in this episode, Tar actually began life long before that term had even been coined. There are deeply human questions of power, corrosion, and culpability within this story that do dovetail in an interesting way with our current climate, but ultimately are bigger than that buzzword and the volatile conversation around it. I really can't recommend the film enough, nor describe how glad I was that Todd was able to spare the time to come on the show and break down some of its themes, scenes, and characters in fascinating detail. Is Lydia really being haunted? What was the early incarnation of the film like before the project was rooted in the high-stakes world of classical music? And when the film ends with a reference to a video game named Monster Hunter, how accurate is it to interpret that this has been a narrative about falling from grace, the titular monster, finally hunted. I spent 45 really compelling minutes with Todd finding out. Thanks to him and a huge thank you as ever to our supporters on Patreon who helped make this episode possible. Script Apart is produced by two people and two people alone, me and my producer Cam. So your support on Patreon is immensely valuable. It helps us continue to create episodes and continue to expand. So thank you if you're already a supporter. If you're not, but are thinking, hey, maybe I'd like to be, head to patreon.com forward slash script apart to get involved. Okay, that's the overture out of the way. Let's hand it over to the maestro himself, Todd Field, discussing the first draft secrets of TAR. Thanks for tuning in, guys. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Hey Todd, so great to have you with us. You began work on Tar a decade ago, at least that's when the character first appeared to you as you've described it elsewhere. Can you tell me about your first encounter with Lydia as this character who kind of popped into your head one day? I'd be really curious to know like who she was at that point and what you think it was about that moment either in your life or or in the culture that prompted her to leap out of your subconscious. i have been thinking
1: of, a lot about know what was becoming uh finally as sort of apparent and beginning to surface uh publicly about patriarchal abuse of power you know um historic abuse of power uh power that we were all born and raised into um and suddenly people were finally beginning to talk about it in the media you know um and and it it begged a question which is okay uh we all in our, whatever our, whatever our various disciplines or lines of work are, we've all encountered sort of um, the sort of complicity of power, you know, um, uh, because that's an agreement. That's an agreement between people of, uh, of sort of allowing and ignoring uh, and doing things because there's a cost benefit. Um, and I reckon, you know, at that point I had been, uh, in my industry for for many, many years, you know, a couple of decades, and I'd certainly witnessed those sorts of things. and um so so when I started thinking about this character, I thought, well, you don't see this, we don't see this with with women. We don't see this very often with people of color. We don't see this with people that have been marginalized to the edge of society by that patriarchal power. So wouldn't that be an an interesting way to to actually look at? how power is a phenomenon or as a force um or as a or as or a you know uh, one of the deadly sins how it actually operates because were this character a uh a white male i think it would be very hard to get to that point where you're actually looking at at the thing itself power because we all have very um conditioned responses to what it means to have it be a white male because we've, we've experienced and heard about this all too often, you know? Um, But I really thought that that character would really just end up living in a notebook forever and ever. And, and she did, you know, because, um, for the next 10 years and, and, and the 10 years previous, uh, you know, if I was fortunate enough to be on a writing assignment, it was, it was based on adapting other people's material. And a lot of times I worked alongside those writers and that was a huge privilege but i was also like openly envious of of my colleagues because they were fiction writers um and they got to sit down and and break the ground first and and that was something i i wondered about because i hadn't done it since film school you know and um i the idea that i would ever have like a four month ramp to to write a spec script um I never had that much time because I never had that much money in the bank, and I have a large family and not a very large bank account. So when, at the beginning of the (laughs) pandemic, when the studio said you can write whatever you like, you know, no outline, no pitch, nothing, Um, and we were all wondering if we were going to survive and what the world would look like, you know, after this detonation had gone off, and would there be cinemas? Would there be churches? Would there be public swimming pools? Would there be any place where? We'd be allowed to gather again collectively. Um, no one knew the answer to that, so it was a very um, strange uh, sort of um, situation to sit down at a desk every day and 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 think, you know, what shall I write? And so I started looking through my notebooks, and and there she was, you know. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is the these are the questions to 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 sort of maybe deal with because. Uh, they're questions that I'd had for a very, very long time. Like, you know, the old saw, like, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And, and why is that, you know, and is there any escape from that? Um, so, I mean, that, that's really kind of, that. that's really sort of how the script began.
0: That's interesting. And, and was there a mission statement from the beginning to kind of go about this story without judgment of this character. The film kind of extends compassion without absolution to Lydia for her behavior. I'd be really curious to know whether that was something by design. It seems important to the story and to your film that the approach was one of balance, of, of empathy without letting the protagonist off the hook.
1: Well, she was a very real person to me, you know, so um, the rules were really more about when do we meet her um, in her life. Um, and I'd certainly written her entire backstory from the time she was a child. So I probably had an implicit empathy with the child in her, the reasons that she, that she found salvation in, in music in the first place. Children are, well, most children are perfect, you know, (laughs) at at some point until that changes the, the world changes or their situation changes or something beyond their control, um, external forces happen or internal forces chemical things whatever but 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 the idea that you know that we're all born innocent into the world um so i i I tried to look at her as objectively uh, as much as one possibly could um if you're if you're writing a character without coming down on one side or the other it was just the facts just reportage in terms of a a, for the most part you know a fairly objective point of view that has a a, a a fairly close proximity to her the rules were simple that that we only know what she knows we don't know um for certainty um what happened before these three weeks um and we don't know what's happening in the future and we're allowed access to uh her present moment a couple of private moments an omnipotent moment of someone watching her at the very beginning through a, a device um and seeing her through the eyes of, of two other characters, one Francesca Lentini, played by Noemi Merlant, and the other, of course, by uh, Sharon Goodnow, um, her wife, played by uh, Nina Haas. And then, and then the tiniest bit of, of perhaps uh, interior um, haunting or, 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 or manifestation or whatever it is that she's experiencing in brief. Uh, but for the most part, it's a, a fairly arm's length, um, objective examination of this character.
0: There must have been some details from that extensive backstory that you mentioned writing that uh, it was quite painful to cut or, uh, you know, you toyed with with including somewhere, but ultimately decided this would be too much of a digression. This would be too much of a detour. I I am curious, though, Todd, like, was there anything that you you considered including in the script from from that material that I, I understand was was largely written to inform your read of the character, your understanding of who Lydia is? Was there anything that almost made the cut?
1: No, I'm not a backstory guy. I'm not really a plotter. You know, I'm a character man. You know, um, I I admire people that that are that that are plotters and, and construction people. I don't really I don't really work that way. You know, the the scaffolding for me normally is based upon uh again the 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 sort of construction of others. You know, fiction writers and um, and, and things like that. In this case, I really sat down because i honestly didn't believe anyone would ever make this film i mean i was shocked that they said they wanted to make it um and uh,
0: you can tell on the first page
1: yeah i i i really kind of just sat down and wrote this like a piece of fiction you know and um it I, I i there was really no consequence other than that the world was you know upside down and it was scary so I, I, like i said there were really simple rules for me that and i didn't think very much about it they just seemed right for her You know, I, I, again, it was just, it was about trying to ask some questions um, of myself as a writer and backstory in in such a situation um, I think would be uh, at odds with trying to do that. Because if you're going, if you're getting in late and you're getting out early kind of thing with her, you're playing catch up from the beginning and that's the games afoot. That's part of the, if there, um, if there is a, a level of engagement, or dare I say, pleasure in catching up with this character, it's because there is no backstory, you know.
0: And was the character always called Lydia Tar? Because well, there's something so perfect about the name. That surname evokes ideas of being kind of tarred and feathered, which is a phrase appropriate to the kind of cancel culture explorations of the film. The, the stickiness and toxicity of that substance, tar, also. You can sink in it and there's a sinking feeling to this movie. Was that a happy accident? Was that by design? Talk me through it. Well, I, again, I, you know, I, I haven't had a, um,
1: unfortunately, my Jungian analyst retired about 20 years ago. I really miss him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I do feel like um, it being in dialogue with, with with some a skilled practitioner such as he was or is um, wherever he is. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I didn't. It wasn't by design, you know, um, and, and who can say what's an accident and who can say what's, you know, coming from your, your subconscious. Um, but I just wrote that name down. That was the name I wrote in the book. I didn't think about it. It wasn't like, I wasn't consciously thinking about, it was a musical name, you know. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very musical name when you say it. It's like, da 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 Lydia Tar. you know, <laughs> it's not like... <laughs> And mm-hmm. and there's certainly some Hungarian artists, uh, both filmmakers and a a very famous filmmaker, Bela Tar, who I, I you know was had been someone that I would certainly studied and gone to school on, and was a great admirer of, of his of his of all of his work. Um, there was a great um, uh, novelist uh, by the last name of Tar from Hungary that I liked very much, and. So maybe that's where it came from, but I don't know. I was—it was a was name I wrote down. It was a name when I started the script that I you know, that I put on a chalkboard with a circle around it, and and it became the the hub for this thing. Um, it started to to turn into other things as as the writing happened, but that was just by experimentation, you know.
0: And what were some of the other kind of initial ideas that you were scribbling down at that moment? Like I understand that. She wasn't always a conductor, so I'd be really curious to know, like, what your initial vision for the character was, how you came to center her in the world of of classical music and conducting.
1: When I first thought about her, when she first, when I first um, made a few notes in, in, in a, you know, in a small notebook, uh, I probably, I think at the time I had her sitting atop a media company, um, but that was just a placeholder. I mean, she could have been sitting across a, any kind of. Um, an you know multinational energy company or 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 a, or a banking consortium or, or or anything like that. The one thing that when the studio called me up and said, "Would would you ever be interested in writing something about classical music or a conductor?" I, I thought, hmm, you know, um, that was really the only conversation that we had, and I said, "Okay, sure, yeah, I know a little bit about that. I'd done a piece of writing as a as a writing assignment." You know, uh, fifteen years before that, for something that I wasn't going to direct, and so I kind of dipped my toe in there. Uh, it, it, you know, you're if you're dealing with power, you're talking about you know the shape of a pyramid, and so what better than than an orchestra, right? I mean, you've got it, it's a triangle, literally, you know, with with a with a very clear uh, you know top which is the fulcrum, which is the podium. So I said, sure, you know, and, and that, so that was a very easy thing to say, okay, w- what am I writing and and who is this person? And there she was, you know. Um,
0: and by the time you sat down and, and wrote the first draft at the top of the pandemic, Todd, did you have the movie as it is today pretty much mapped out? Like, were there story avenues you were still exploring at that time that, you know, ultimately turned out to be dead ends, but, you know, in your first draft stage, you were still exploring I'd be really interested to hear what, if anything, changed. As presumably you took an initial pass at the script and then you know rewrote it, rewrote it some more.
1: Well, this again, this was a very unusual situation. Now, um, I the script I handed in, they gave me no notes. That was the script that was greenlit. So that was the shooting script. I never rewrote anything. Wow. <laughs> the only thing that, the only thing that you know, but I would also say that you know I'm a firm believer. um, and I think this is hard if you write material that you're not directing, that you're not producing, that you're not editing. Um, and this is where I think it's a bum deal for, for writers often. My father-in-law um, is a great screenwriter, Bo Goldman and Bo, yeah, yeah. Bo never directed. He would have been a wonderful director. And I know that from working with him on, on material um, when I was a young actor. Um, but you're at the mercy of whoever is out shooting your stuff, you know, but when you're shooting your stuff, you're not you're not you're at no one's mercy because you're still writing, you know? um, if you're on the set and you say, "Wait a minute, we're shooting scene sixty five and it sure smells like scene forty two we we need to do something differently. You might end up completely inverting a scene to have it mean something one hundred and eighty degrees different. So there's some contrast. so you're finding something else. So you really, you know, the old cliche is that the final draft is in is in the edit is absolutely true, you know? And it was interesting with this film um, for me because, you know, I, I kind of have a film family. Uh, and that's funny to say for somebody that's only made a couple of features, you know? But most of the people that I worked with on those features were people that I had worked with since film school, you know, including my script supervisors. So in this case, um, there was, you know, there were... Um, a couple of mandates from the studio. One was that I was the only American, um, and that I had to work with in an all German crew, well, other than my first AD, who's a d, who's an incredible um, collaborator and someone that i've I've worked in advertising with over the years. so i I knew each other. we knew each other well. Um, i I hadn't worked with anyone else. And the script supervisor, uh, used to come to me and say, "You're changing this. You can't do that. It's in the script. It says this." And I said, "Well, I said, 'Well, well, Todd wrote the script, not God. You know, and and you're stand <laughs> and you're talking to Todd, and we're still writing the script. You know, it's okay. We can change it. No one's going to throw us into movie jail. You know, so um, the the revision process was really done as it always is when you're making something that you've written, which is uh, through." Uh, through process you know um, very much like the film the The film is a is a process film it's not a, a performance film so that comes out of you know rehearsals and that comes out of um trying things that feel um like they might be better done another way that comes through uh when you're sitting in an editing room with somebody as talented as monica willie and you say why are they talking so much who wrote this you know where's the dumb writer so i can punch him i was like oh it's me you know (laughs) um you know you know do we really need um this scene here would it be better if we if we get rid of it you know all, all of those typical things that normally you would do if you were going through four or five uh sets of revision on a script you know
0: well i'd love to dive into some scenes with you todd there's an obvious kind of exposition reason to start your movie the, the way you do, with Lydia kind of taking part in this Q&A in front of a huge audience. The interviewer, in his introduction, before Lydia comes out on stage, he's able to tell us in the audience who the character is in a way that feels organic to the world on screen. W- was that the sole impulse behind starting your film uh, it, with, with this incredible scene? And, and were there ever any other kind of places you, you contemplated beginning this story?
1: No, I always saw it that way. I mean, the first time we meet her, we're meeting her through the eyes or through the device of someone else. Um, and she's vulnerable. She's observed. She literally is blindfolded, like she's about ready to go and be executed. You know, um, All you'd have to do is put a cigarette in her mouth. Uh, so <laughs> that's our first view of her. Our second view of her is more objective we're in front of her and we're alone with her and she's very bothered and clearly um on high alert very anxious uh one might say frightened so again very very vulnerable character um now the contrast between those two uh meetings is her walking on stage and performing and that's a performance she's performing Lydia Tarr she is not Lydia Tarr. She is she's it's a it's a character that she's self constructed, and that goes along with that biography. And that biography has very clearly been constructed by her, because you see her assistant Francesca Lentini, mouthing it word for word. So <laughs> Adam right. Gotnik is dutifully retrotting that out word for word, syllable for syllable. So, you know, the first time we meet her, we have access we don't understand through whoever this person is on the other side of the device, then access that is um, where we're, we're so close to her. It may be uncomfortable. And then we're at arm's length and and we see her as the world sees her. Um, and so I always saw it that way. I always thought that was a, a good way to meet her and then to keep her at arm's length um, through different sorts of facets of, of, of her world until, um, we finally find her in a way that we have understandable sort of access to her, you know, when she's literally when she's brushing her teeth in the morning and you go, oh, oh, she's, oh, okay, great. Yeah, okay. Now, you know, how thrilling it is to to see her do something so, you know, so every day, so commonplace, right? Um, but in terms of, yes, it's in terms of her, um, in terms of being able to get her backstory and be able to understand a milieu that perhaps many people, um, you know, heretofore have had no exposure to or interest in. Um, Obviously that was a very handy thing to do because um, the main thing is we understand this, that she is an expert in her field, that she knows her stuff. Um, Not that we know it, but that that we know she knows it. So that by the end of that New Yorker talk, you're no longer watching um, anybody but, Lydia Tar playing Lydia Tar.
0: Hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favourite writers, to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine. Featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and, dare I say, beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash scriptapart where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a Pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash scriptapart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. There are so many things happening in that scene. It establishes the reverence with which she's regarded, the height from which she has to tumble over the course of this movie. It also establishes a bit of a ticking clock as the movie begins to hurtle towards the the, the deadlines involved in this live recording of Mailer's Fifth Symphony. There's also the mystery of this red-headed woman that we see at the back of the auditorium. This we kind of later come to understand is Krista, a past student, And that strand of the film is so fascinating, and uh, I'm particularly fascinated by the way you lean in formally to the story you're telling there. Like, her death in this movie haunts Lydia, and and both on the page and in your direction, you approach it as a haunting. Like, there are are chunks of this film that you present like a ghost story, Todd. The motif, for example, of bumps in the night waking Lydia up, kind of causing her to go wandering through her apartment – can you tell me about the inspiration behind this whole side of the film and and the degree to which I'm right or wrong in thinking there is a ghost story component to this movie, the ghosts of Lydia's past behaviour, kind of rendered physical in those horror movie scenes?
1: Well, I mean, there is. A, she, she is being haunted. Um, I remember when we had the first, you know, first time we'd shown the film, the very first press conference in Venice, um, there was a, a reporter from Boston who asked if it was a haunting and I i think i I, I think I, I I dropped the 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 ball that was thrown to me um because of course there is you know, um uh, but I don't really think about it in a genre way, you know I, yeah. I and that's not really where it came from. i mean I think as you say um, it, her deeds or 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 the ghosts from the past are are she's faded they're 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 catching up with her, and she can feel that, you know, um and the very first kind of moment of that is, you know, about in, close to, you know, 40 some odd minutes into the film when she's brushing her hair at the Carlisle hotel and she turns as if she, as if there's something on her back, she's bothered, you know? Um, and from that moment on, it, it it's like there's something on her. She can't get off of herself, you know? Um, and so there's some, there's something that, that is, um, there, there's something niggling at her, you know, and whether or not that, it's real, whatever that means, um, or it's something that's, that's manifesting from her, uh, from somewhere within her, you know, is kind of um, irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. It's really, that's really up for the viewer. But but there is something that's bothering her, it's something inevitable. Um,
0: and the scene where Lydia has a conversation with a pan-gender student who, who kind of struggles to engage with Bach's music because of what he perceives as the composer's misogynistic life away from the podium... I felt my entire screening kind of leaning forward in that scene, the entire audience. It's such a compelling and intriguing exchange of ideas, Todd. You mentioned earlier about like some scenes in this film being kind of an outlet for questions and debates you were having within yourself. Is this one such scene? I'd love to know about your relationship with with some of the questions being asked on both sides in, in this segment of the movie, Todd.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, it's the first scene that I wrote. Um, and I rewrote it for months. Every day at the end of my writing day, for the rest of the script, I go back to that scene. Um, and yeah, I mean, that there's a that scene was important to me because it is it's a scene about the questions. Um, I mean, quite literally, she's 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 laying the theme out for for this other character at the piano. Um, now, in, in terms of of the characters, and that's really the only thing that I could speak to, you know. I think the desire to write this thing in the first place was sort of like the old age old question, which is the 50 year old person, you know, uh, somebody saying, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would you say? Would you have any wisdom to impart, you know? Um, and that's a very dodgy, uh, proposition. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and in this case you have a character who's middle-aged, um, who, you know, uh, not that there'll be a test, but if you've been listening carefully at the age that this student was, was this student.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. She,
1: she graduated from Harvard. She went to the Amazon. She turned her back on canonical works. She wasn't interested in playing dead white man music. She was with people of color and she was trying to get at the source of where does music come from? Her PhD was on ethnomusicology – for ethnomusicology, rather, was um, in setting this, you know, the Icaros of, of the Eastern Amazon with the shipibo Kanibo people. So she's – she is the student. This she There's no difference. It, it, it's like if you got in a time machine, she would be the student in this instance.
0: Mm.
1: So where does the scene begin? The scene begins with her um, insulting the student on their choice of Anna Thorva's daughter's row, which is an incredible piece of music. Um, personally, that's my position on it. And, <laughs> and Anna was kind enough and had enough um, awareness of pretend and that this was a character and, 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 and wasn't a fact or, or certain any piece of editorializing on, on any of the filmmakers part to allow us to use the music and to actually allow uh, what Lydia Tar says about her music to be in the film. Um, So um, that was a beautiful thing, right? Um, Because why is Lydia Tarr uh, tearing down Anna Tholver's piece? Well, we don't know this yet, but in the scene that follows this directly, we see that she's trying to, she's in the midst of trying to write something herself, right? And when her assistant comes in, she says, I don't know, it all sounds like, yeah, it doesn't sound like, um, uh, like, you know Charles warmed over Charles Ives well Charles Ives you know is sort of one of the great parents of atonal music uh but here she is ripping down uh Arnold music to the student because it's atonal uh and because it has you know it is she professes that it has no intent or point of view um but she also goes on to talk about Arnold um and objectify her physically her, she talks about her beauty, right? And and her age, that she's young. And 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 Lydia Tarr isn't young. She's middle-aged. Um, she struggles with writing something that she's already characterized as being atonal, that she never gets very far with through the entire movie. So she's got a bone to pick with this student. It's not coming from left field. You know, I think um there's better, it's interesting to see how people read the scene because there is also the argument of of the student's dismissal of Bach, but I think the more important dismissal is the first one by her. She's holding power in that scene. She she has it over this this kid who's in a in a very vulnerable position and clearly uh, is affable enough to laugh at her jokes and and allow her to put him in an even more vulnerable position for a very long time. And he's clearly nervous, you know. He, he's, 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 he's embracing the idea of surrendering himself to what she has to say until, until it's too much and he can't do it anymore. So they both have their reasons and they both have their arguments um, and, and they both articulate those arguments. But I think he's a much more honest about articulating, articulating his viewpoint about Bach, whether you believe it or not, you know, whether you agree with him or not. He's he's been completely transparent about what his reasons are. Lydia Tarr is isn't being transparent at all.
0: I'm really intrigued by the juxtaposition of how you know, for example, you followed that scene with uh, different scenes in which kind of we're, we're slaloming in terms of our perception of the character and our empathy as an audience towards her. Lydia contains multitudes, and the film presents these many different glimpses of those multitudes, both good and bad. In ways that keep our feeling towards her in this constant state of fluidity. Sometimes there's there's courage and even even hilarity, I think, to her behavior. Like I, I know I probably shouldn't laugh at a grown woman telling a small kid that she's gonna get her if she continues bullying her child, but um, that's who I am. Apparently, <laughs> you know. Then moments later in the script, Lydia will be quite mean to her assistant, or she'll make some other transgression that makes it really hard to like her. Can you talk to me about your attentiveness to the ordering of these moments in order to kind of engineer that moral slipperiness? Did it come about organically or was there there a method to the way that almost scene to scene the audience is being forced to reevaluate how they feel about her?
1: Um, I don't think it was very conscious. I, I Again, I think that if we were to follow, if anyone were to follow any of us around for three weeks, um, <laughs> you know, um, we're by definition we are a a jumble of contradictions you know we're we're faithful we're we're unfaithful we're uh we have integrity we're we're hypocrites we um we're capricious and or we're precise and all of us are i mean we're that that's by definition human right none of us are, are, are absolute sinners or saints so it's really about just trying to see as many aspects of of this character as a human being as possible, you know, um, to try to hopefully have her be as three dimensional as possible. Um, and this was like sitting down and writing a piece of fiction. It wasn't equational narrative. I, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not a plotter that way. I, I really tried to, um, meet her as, as honestly as I could every day at a writing desk. Um, and, and, and let her go where she was going to go and what and do what she was going to do.
0: Is that what led you to the character of Olga? Like, as one cycle of abuse in the film ends in, in the most violent form for the victim, Krista, another is beginning. We meet this young cellist, Olga, and her youth is really accentuated, Todd. Like, from the way she eats all the way down to that little toy that she drops in Lydia's car... Was that to kind of play up the power dynamic there? Like, you know, the inappropriateness of Lydia's growing infatuation with her? Talk to me about Olga, Todd.
1: Well, again, I mean, you know, it's important that you mirror a character, you know, in in the same way that this this Juilliard character, uh, student Max, you know, um, is a mirror of her. So is the cellist in a way. Um, The difference in the cellist is... Yes, you know, she's nineteen years old she's Russian um, and there's certain assumptions that uh that Lydia Tar makes about her because she's met a lot of young people that need her, and now she meets a nineteen year old who we've already been able to see one side of Lydia's hypocrisy, a direct violation of the manifesto she lays out for the Juilliard student about being judged by your baton your stick technique or something else well that's something else apparently has to do with consumer goods or in this case green suede boots you know so um there she is sitting across lunch from this person who um is literally um uh tearing at life tearing at her food not concerned about her manners not concerned about who she's sitting across from saying she doesn't care who conducted something that was more about jacqueline dupre the player Talking about International Women's Day and Clara Zetkin and people that Lydia Tarr isn't even aware of. And suddenly she finds herself in awe of this creature that's not playing by the rules and um, is not self seemingly uh, so comfortable with herself that she's not constructing an image, which is what Lydia Tarr's whole life has been about presentation right here's a character that doesn't care about anything other than playing the music so she's the purest form of, of an artist she's something to be instantly respected um and 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 in, in in the same way that a lot of you know older people sort of feed on the enthusiasms and talents and um passion of, of of younger artists in their discipline. Um she's in the same situation. Of essentially she's got this muse that suddenly she feels is gonna wake her up again. Because who cares about somebody recording Mahler's Fifth Symphony again? or Is it maybe it'll be great, but will Bernstein's be better? Will Von Karian's or Abados or you name it, you know, like and suddenly she has this opportunity that, that activates her in a way, you know. Um so that was where the idea came from, which is like, okay, as opposed to, could you, what would you say to your younger self? What, what would you say to your younger self that you might respect more than, than what you were at that age where you were following a very clear sort of path of, of doing sort of understandable, manifest, cultural, educational, accepted doodads to ascend. Right. Um, and and here's this character um, who, who's conducting themselves in an entirely different manner that seems so much more exciting and alive.
0: Is that what led you to Lydia returning to her family home and, and watching that tape of what does music mean? Like you mentioned there about how presentation is so important to Lydia. Olga, on the other hand, you know, it's about the music and she has that raw connection to music that presumably Lydia once had. What did that scene mean to you, Todd, as Lydia kind of reminds herself of, you know, what does music mean? And, uh, you know, we see her break down. We see the mask begin to slip.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think you've articulated it quite well. You know, um, again, she came from a pre-internet, pre-social media era. Um, and so some of what we learn about her in the beginning is true, uh, her ethnographic fieldwork. Uh, the schools she attended, and some of it is hyperbolic, and some of it is simply wholesale um, um, fabrication, right? And so, this sort of obsession, you know, this sort of fetish, you know, fetishizing of, of Leonard Bernstein is, I, I think, a, a, a very um, a common thing. You know, there, there's a reason that that many people. Myself included, are very fascinated by by him as a character, as a human being, as a seducer, um, and a and a and a and a great, like the greatest advocate ever for concert music. Because all you have to do is watch one of his young people's concerts, or watch the Unanswered Question, um, or any of the the Norton Lectures at Harvard, and you think you're going to watch them for for thirty seconds, and you find yourself sitting there for for hours um it was just something amazing about uh, about him as a musician um and and where he stripped away pretense and 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 pulled you into the music for what it was you know the essence of yeah. what it was and so for her to be inspired by that as a young person and and try to run toward that salvation before she was corrupted um by other Forces and and by sitting up top a power structure and having to service that power structure, um, which is you know about legacy and death and not about creative expression um, necessarily, <laughs> uh, was important. It was also important um, for her it, to, for her to remember that um, and and maybe just incidentally important, but not all that important to realize she never studied with Leonard Bernstein and she never possibly could have. He died in 1990 and. I mean, maybe she would have had a moment to pass him in a hallway, but he certainly wasn't some great mentor to her. And I, you, you you come across um, uh, these things, you know, in, in my business, I've certainly run across people in the past that claim people as mentors, which is why I'm always allergic, even if I've had a mentor to, to, to characterize them that way, because who's to say who was your mentor and wasn't your mentor? And, and as far as she's concerned, uh, whatever those videotapes tapes contained at the top of her childhood closet. Um, she was mentored by Bernstein. She just she's never met him, you know.
0: And we should talk about the ending also, Todd. Um, there's such beautiful symmetry to it. Like it's a scene that mirrors the opening sequence with with Tar strolling out in front of an audience to to give this performance. In the beginning was an interview. Here she's conducting well she's conducting uh, music from a video game called Monster Hunter the audience are all in cosplay, on a literal story level it's it's an end point to what she probably perceives of herself being a fall from grace. She began the film as this respected bastion of high art and now she's she's practically exiled conducting video game music which is looked looked down upon in front of an audience of teenagers in costume. I, I was wondering whether, you know, the Monster Hunter reference, whether that was a very deliberate choice, the Monster in the context of cancel culture, has been hunted by the end of this film. how did you arrive at this conclusion, this this parting shot to the movie?
1: Um, well, there are different certainly uh, all kinds of ways to look at that scene um, and, and, and people have, you know, um, I, I mean, from her point of view, or let's say uh, not from her point of view, let's say from the, the, the world of the milieu of concert music, classical music, yes. Some might see that as a fall from grace. However, uh, Wagner used to underscore every single beat for every gesture of of, of his music. Um, if you look at what the Nazis did to uh, through anti-Semitism to all the great Jewish composers that had to flee Nazi Germany and come out and write the great film scores, invent movie music, um, and then have Hitler in a bunker sitting there watching those movies and loving those movies. Um, those, those composers music w- were banned. Um, John Maucherry, who helped me when I was writing the script and just wrote a great, uh, book called, um, the war against music or the war on music. And, and, and that's precisely what it's about. And what happened is after the war, instead of people remembering, Oh, it was, the reason these composers were banned and kind of kicked out of the classical music club was because of anti-Semitism. Instead, it just felt like, no, it was just a fact of the great bog you know, cultural gatekeepers. So these people were, many of them were were ghettoized and never really accepted back into the classical realm. People, you know, Korngold and Steiner and people like that, that were, were, were some of the great, great composers of the 20th century. Yeah. So, um, you know, movies were looked at the way that that someone in classical music might now think about video games, but no serious person, um, with a straight face will tell you any modern composer that, that they're not composing for video games because that's the largest audience. And it actually, is a huge amount of, um, utility and opportunity in terms of underscoring, if that's your thing, you know? So, um, so there's that. (laughs) Um, and, and that audience, uh, sure looks engaged um they sure they there's no one's blinking i made sure of that you know um and and they've gone to a great deal of effort just as much as somebody that would you know wear swan tails and white ties and 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 pretty dresses to go to see uh to go see uh, you know concert music and in in, in, in any german austro sort of venue So um, I mean, I think the fundamental difference there, and she's taking it as seriously as anything, I think the fundamental difference for the character there is she's no longer having to um, run a large organization. Um, As you say, the mask has fallen. And what's she doing? She's taking it as seriously as anything she's ever done. She's making music. She has a human instrument, which is what a conductor plays. Um, And uh, one fundamental difference, which is that She's been handed a headset. And as she says at the beginning, time is the thing, time is the great, you know, piece of interpretation. Well, she's not she doesn't have control of time anymore. She's listening to a click track. Right.
0: That's interesting. And I should ask as well, Todd, um, whether that conclusion was something you had to pause and and really think about because, well, to to whatever degree we accept that this is um a fall from grace for Lydia, at, at least in her eyes often there is no serious comeuppance. There, there isn't true accountability for these people in positions of power who, who behave badly. Were there any other endings you contemplated at any point in the writing process as, as perhaps thoughts around that crept into your thinking?
1: No, because I, I'm not interested in procedurals, you know. Um, and ultimately, if you're dealing with that, that's a different sort of thing. That's not what this film is about. This film, yes, there's a scandal element and there's an examination of power, but it's not some modern day commentary on 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 anything it's set in the modern world so the things that are in the air and part of the conversation are certainly part of uh, her eventual um transition into another life but um but no i mean um I, I would never do that that's that's a different kind of movie that's like that's like a courtroom drama um, <laughs> yeah like, yeah not really not really my thing <laughs>
0: Well, I should let you go, Todd. But before I do, can I just ask, uh, yeah, what's, what's, what's the news with the fundraiser? It's premiering soon. It's a short film described as expanding the tar universe. Is this something you shot initially as part of the movie, but had to cut for time and now you're siphoning it off into its own thing? Is it altogether new? And uh, yeah, how, how much should be read into its existence in terms of, I don't know, maybe the possibility of seeing more of Lydia of returning to this world?
1: well um the way that you just described it i think was um came out of the the, the fingers of the or the lips of uh, the, someone wonderful at the berlinale uh film festival they're not my <laughs> yeah. words but but i'll but i'll take them um uh no i mean kate and i had uh, you know 9 months uh before we were on the ground together in berlin um and over that 9 months we talked about all sorts of things that we would try you know um and some of those things we we had time to to um execute, some of those things we abandoned. And this was a rather extensive idea um that both of us were excited about, but kind of dubious that would ever have would ever see the light of day um in the film. Um and and we were doubly convinced of that after we'd shot the first part of it, but we decided to finish it anyway. Um so uh this is a it's a it's a short piece um it's it's only about 10 minutes long and um and it was it was part of that process it was part of a lot of things that um that we tried um to play around with and it's not a uh it it kind of lives in a sort of fantasia it sort of lives uh in a world apart from the film
0: wow i can't wait to see it well Todd, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for this film. Good luck in award season. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on Script Apart.
1: Yes, I appreciate the conversation, Al. Thank you. Thanks for your time.
0: You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.